0: Ice guy. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we'll get started here, and uh, just so you know, I will, I'm trying to get us done by right around 11, if not just before 11. Um, I have to go down to um, Dunsmuir, uh, to preach down in Dunsmuir this morning, and... They start at ten forty-five, so I'm going to be zipping down there and getting there just in time. So, uh, <laughs> I just want to let you know. So, if I'm like afterwards scooting out that door and I'm not chit-chatting or something, that's why I'm not trying to run away from you or avoid you. So, you'll have to if there's a big criticism you have, then you'll have to save it till next week, or you can criticize Bubba, and he'll handle it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, so. This morning, um, I want to get started by reading in Acts chapter five, starting in verse twenty-nine. And this will be familiar to you, when the apostles are charged not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, and this is their the response uh, from Peter and the apostles in Acts five, starting in verse twenty-nine. It says but Peter and the apostles answered we must obey god rather than men the god of our fathers raised jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree god exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to israel and forgiveness of sins and we are witnesses to these things and so is the holy spirit whom god has given to those who obey him uh, let's have a word of prayer this morning, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this morning, for time to gather together and, uh, and fellowship uh, as we are looking through church history at how you have preserved your church um, through many hardships um, and challenges and failings and sin, um, all kinds of things, Lord, throughout history, and we are so grateful for how you um, preserve your church and how you preserve your word. And, Lord, we want to praise you this morning and thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, for our part in the history of your church. First and foremost, Lord, that our sins have been forgiven as Christians, and that's what makes us a part of the church. And so we're grateful. And, Lord, may we not forget those who came before us. Uh, May we learn from that, um, appreciate that, uh, and Father, may we uh, pass on a, a legacy of adherence to your word um, and, uh, and to Christ as our Savior. And may we, may we faithfully do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, last week, um, when Bubba was teaching, he went over things, um, a lot of different things, including, I'm just going to do a little quick recap here, uh, the schism between the East and the West, that, that was a, a splitting of the church into two halves. Um, there was, of course, political and cultural and language differences. Um, Greek in the East um, with the Byzantine Empire and Latin in the West. Um, and um, we heard about uh, disagreements regarding church leadership and the Pope in Rome, deciding that, of course, uh, they were um, supreme over the bishops of the East. Uh, which, of course, they didn't feel the same way. Uh, East and West, at, at one point, actually excommunicated each other. <laughs> uh, and the West would become known as, uh, or the East would become known as Eastern Orthodox. And then, of course, in the West, we would have uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, we talked about the Crusades, uh, the disasters that, that those were, um, all the problems with that. We talked about the scholars. And the the rise of the of scholasticism during uh, the time of Charlemagne, which Bubba mentioned last week, um, and within a couple hundred years, you know, Europe of that Europe began seeing universities starting up, such as Oxford and others. Uh, and it was a time of when when learning actually began to change, following the discovery of Greek philosophy, uh, and Bubba touched on that last week as well. Um, and one major takeaway from last week um, that is important. Uh, there's many, but we, this is remember. This is just an overview. This is not in depth. Um, but importantly, we should note that the corruption and um, in the church was on the rise. Okay, it was already bad, but it's really on the rise. And um, by the mid to late 12th century, the the power that the popes held um, and that was wielded by them was was very great. Uh, it really reached its highest point under Pope Innocent III. Um, during his time as Pope, among other things, the teaching that there was a treasure house of merit in heaven was adopted, and, and Bubba touched on that last week as well, um, and that the Pope could, could give indulgences because of his ability to tap into that extra merit um, kept in heaven the extra merit that Christ earned and perhaps even some of the saints um, would have earned left extra merit. And so the popes could tap into that. And those could be applied to people like pardons, right? So that the amount of punishment for sin could be reduced. Um, And this is not a biblical teaching. It's actually anti-biblical. And so I just want to ask a question on that. How do you think this practice of the sale of indulgences could be abused by church leadership. If you didn't know anything about it, how can that be abused? They can get rich from it. Absolutely. Okay? They sold indulgences for money. And, and since these aren't even a real thing, they're really just manipulating people. They're, they're getting money from people based on fear and, and promises of things that, that they can't deliver uh, in terms of... Um, Cutting down on the amount of punishment people had to pay for sin and time in purgatory and all that kind of stuff, which is another issue. But um, and so it did get abused. It absolutely got abused. Uh, the, the the sale of indulgences was something that uh, was a big part of uh, when we get into the Reformation. It's a big part of that, um, and it's just one of one of several things that uh, the reformers had a problem with uh, with the church. But it was absolutely abused. Also, the, the doctrine of transubstantiation was solidified uh, as official ter- church doctrine during this time. Does anyone know what is the doctrine of transubstantiation? Yes. So, with communion, yeah, the, the bread or the wafer becomes the actual body of Christ. The, the wine becomes the actual blood of Christ. Um, they somehow, supernaturally, physically transformed in terms of their substance into the body and blood of Jesus. Essentially, Jesus being sacrificed every time. He's being sacrificed again. And we can see how, on your sheets there, we can see how the Roman Catholic Church defines this by looking at the, the catechism of the Catholic Church in section 1376. And I included that in there because I, I thought it was interesting. Um, it says, this is their... Their official wording. The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, Because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and the wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ, our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood, this change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Okay, well, where would they get something like that? You know, how how would they come up with something like that? And they, of course, would want to justify it scripturally, you would think. And I think there are several places, but one in particular where they would get this would be from John 6. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. You can kind of see how they might come up with that, right? Uh, it, could, it could make sense. But, you know, we read a little bit further in that passage, and, and that's all it takes, really, is to look and see. How Jesus explains what he means by this in verse 63. It says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is a spiritual reality. Jesus is using the the physical understanding of drinking and eating to describe and teach a spiritual truth. Okay, we know in that event, too, that many of the followers of Christ, that was it for them, right? When they heard that, they're like, I'm out of here. That's too weird. Uh, It was very hard, right? And Jesus actually asked the disciples. Uh, if they were going to leave also, and of course they didn't uh, because um, they determined he had the words of life, where else would they go? So you know, we do this as a remembrance, not as a sacrifice, when we talk about communion. Luke twenty-two nineteen 19 says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, The church, however, was teaching that that this was a re-sacrifice of Jesus for sins. Well, why is that a problem for us as Bible-believing Christians? Why is that a problem that we would be re-sacrificing Jesus? He died once for all, absolutely. Yeah. It's once for all. Hebrews 7:27. He has no need like those high priests, this is talking about Jesus. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Uh, Hebrews 7.27. And then Hebrews ten 10.10 Hebrews also says, And by that will we have been um, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay? It's very clear. Now as we continue our look at church history today, oh yeah, Bubba, go ahead.
1: Uh, just to clarify, the Council of Trent was a response to the Reformation. It wasn't held until 1546, and in, that was really, in a lot of ways, the birth of the Roman Catholic Church uh, as we know it today. Uh, before that, it was still one church that had gone astray. The Council of Trent is going to codify the split between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. But transubstantiation itself as a doctrine was adopted by the Church in what we call the Fourth Lateran Council, which was in 1215. So what Hoyt is rightly including is the catechism of the Catholic Church, which is what people would read today, and that dates back to Trent. But as a doctrine, the Church had held this for a few centuries earlier than Trent.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's... Still held today. Um, so now, as we continue looking at church history, we see that again there are so many popes. Um, and I was reading a section of a, of a book that that um, Bubba uh, had me read this week too. And and so I'll ask Bubba here in a second if he has anything to add here. But I was trying to condense this whole this whole time period um, in into a short little bit. So um, I'm. I'm of course leaving a lot out because again this is just an overview. But anyway, there we see that uh, Pope Boniface became pope in 1294, and uh, his time of, as pope was was marked by a lot of and this isn't new, right? It's marked by a lot of disagreement and political meddling between him and the the kings of England and France, um, and this mixture between church, uh, the church and the politics of the state was filled with manipulation and lies and and fighting. Um, And there's a lot of back-and-forth struggles. And at one point, uh, Pope Boniface had determined to use uh, uh, the weapon, if you want to call it that, the weapon of excommunication uh, against the French. Uh, And this, of course, was usually a powerful weapon, right? You could use against somebody. The idea of being excommunicated from the church uh, is not something that, that one would want to endure, um, but one of the close advisors to the French king organized a group of people to kidnap Boniface in order to get him to abdicate, but he wouldn't do it, and so they at one point forced him to ride backwards on a horse as they trotted him through town in order to humiliate him uh, because they felt that he was a false, he was a false pope, um, and he was eventually freed, but, but he was deserted by most of his cardinals. Uh, which this, again, is a time where popes would surround themselves with their personal picks for people who were supportive of them and, and even family members um, were, were often made cardinals um, in order to, to prop up their, the pope who was their relative. Um, and so, but he had lost a lot of um, respect at one point. He had, he had a lot of respect from people, but he lost that. Um, and he died not too long after that then you throw in a couple more popes and you get to Pope Clement V. Uh, and by 1309, Pope Clement um, had begun living in Avignon, France, and, and not in Rome. And this led to about 70 years of popes residing in, in Avignon and not in Rome, though they all at that time would still have claimed to be bishops of Rome. But you can imagine how that appeared to all those living in Rome, not having their, their pope there. Um, and this was a time where, again, where popes continued to be tools of the French government. Um, and actually, this whole time period became known as the Avignon Papacy, or even by some um, later as the, the Babylonian captivity of the church. Of course, hearkening back to the capture of God's people uh, by the Babylonians in the Old Testament. Um, and it wasn't until later that Pope Gregory... The eleventh, I believe it is, returned to the papacy. Returned the papacy to Rome. Um, The pope after him also um, decided to stay in Rome, and which led the French cardinals to electing a rival pope. Okay, again, that pope would be in Avignon, and this was Pope Clement uh, the Seventh. Now there's two popes. Okay, Uh, in in 1409 there was they're trying to. Reconcile this, trying to fix this. They called uh, the Council of Pisa, where they tried to, to fix the problem of the two popes, um, which resulted in them electing a third pope. <laughs> but the other two popes didn't abdicate, which it was the idea that they would abdicate, but they, they didn't. So now you have three popes. Okay? Um, and it's referred to, that time period is referred to as uh, the Western Schism. Uh, which ended up, did end up resolving in 1417 at the Council of Constance. Um, So, Bubba, if there's anything you wanted to add to that, I know that's a very condensed version.
1: Yeah, so the significance of this is, there's a a manifold, but a couple of things come from this. One is whatever moral authority the bishops of Rome had left, I mean, keep in mind this is after the so-called pornocracy, which was a couple hundred years of, of uh, the papacy being uh, basically a puppet of prostitutes in Rome and, and you know, a pretty dark time uh, in the church. But a lot of the authority of the papacy is, is rests in the doctrine of apostolic succession, which was an important safeguard to truth in the early church, but now, as in many things, has been corrupted and and is now a source of 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 evil in the church and so whatever legitimate claim to apostolic succession the papacy had which you know apostolic succession we talked about earlier was the you know the laying on of hands or or the passing on of the teaching and authority of the apostles from the apostles to the first generation of believers and so on and so forth and so forth whatever legitimacy that claim had is totally decimated by this event in which there is no succession. So the bishop of Rome is not the bishop of Rome. He is a tool of the French king in southern France, and now you have two popes and then three popes. Where is your succession? Where is the the passing on of the apostles' authority? It has been broken down completely. So this is a very important event in eliminating the Actual authority and the moral authority and the spiritual authority of the papacy—that it, it's an important event that's going to presage the, the coming Reformation. So yeah. now it's like the emperor has no clothes, basically.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know the the church is a mess, right? And you can imagine what this looks like to the people, right? And it's not the, that the people were unaware of this. Of course, they're aware of this, um, but so it's just—it's a real mess, and you know it needed. To be, it needed to be reformed. The church needed to, uh, a reformation. Um, the pope was supposed to be the head of the church, um, but you have the problems of the sale of indulgences and the, the papal schism and among other major corruptions of biblical doctrine. And now, mixed in with all these goings-on in church history, we can, we can see evidence of what Bubba reminded us of last week in that God always has his remnant. Okay, we, can, we can see that as we look back at church history. We, you may not be able to see it if you're reading about this, um, and, I, and I was struck by, as I'm reading through all of this, all the things that were going on with the popes and the church and the, the, the severe lack of any mention of, of the Word of God and, and following Christ. And it's just all this political um, upheaval and fighting, and it's so ungodly and unchristian. Uh, just evidence of the, of the corruption that was going on, and so we, we do see evidence of God's remnant, and that is the the true church, the true followers of Christ. Never never disappear. His, his church is never squashed. You know, Christ said he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, he's the one building his church, so we, we can trust that he will he will keep it going, and he has. Um, So we're up to the 1400s now, but starting back in 1140 to 1210, there's a man named Peter Waldo, and he's one of three men that we'll mention today who were a part of—they were not part of what we traditionally know as the Reformation, but um, they came before that, and so they're sort of pre-Reformers. And in addition to Waldo, there's also John Wycliffe and um, John Huss, and I know I'm not pronouncing those names right. I'm pronouncing them the way we would pronounce them, but that's not how they're actually pronounced. So looking at, at Peter Waldo from 1140 to 1210, he's, he's a regular guy. He's a, a merchant uh, from Lyon, which is uh, in what we know as France. Um, he ended up selling everything he owned uh, and devoting his life to, to Christ, devoting his life to the preaching of a message of repentance. Um, and he gained followers, and his followers did the same. They, they sold all their belongings and possessions to, to live a life of poverty, and they actually became no- known as the Poor of Lion. Um, and later, uh, because of, I guess if you want to call him the founder of that group, I don't know that he set out to found a group, but um, later they became known as the Waldensians. And, and he, Waldo loved and had a focus on the Word of God in his life, and he, he commissioned a translation of portions of the Bible into the local dialect. His preaching, his preaching ministry was centered on the Word of God, um, and that group, the Waldensians, actually um, was denounced um, later on in the Third Lateran Council in, in 1179, and, of course, that Lateran council is in Rome, where the cathedral is, and that's where they would hold these councils uh, and make these decisions. So they were denounced, uh, but he didn't stop preaching, um, insisting that it was better to obey God than men. And, and like we, we began today with that passage in Acts 5, and the apostles had a similar problem, didn't they? They were told to stop preaching Christ, and, and they wouldn't. They couldn't. Um, the re- religious leaders didn't like it. They charged them not to preach Christ anymore. Um, but, but Peter's statement, initial statement about that is we must obey God rather than men. And the, the Waldensians were determined by the Pope to be heretics. Uh, they were following that. They're, they're persecuted. They're, uh, many are killed. Um, others are forced to hide. And there's kind of this back and forth of all of that. But they never are truly stamped out. Um, the, the Waldensians were, were for the people being able to read the scriptures in their own language and not in Latin, okay? And that's different from what the church taught and did, um, but they, they thought that the Word of God should be able to be in the hands of the people. Um, they considered the Bible to be their, their sole authority, not the Pope, <clears throat> and they, they spoke publicly about the corruption. We've been talking about all this corruption. They would speak out about this publicly. um, And they considered that, or uh, they rejected some of the uh, traditions of the church, like praying uh, for the dead and the idea of holy water. They didn't venerate saints. They didn't bow um, at altars. They, again, publicly speaking out about other areas of the corruption, like um, the sale of indulgences and the false doctrine of purgatory. Uh, they believed communion was a remembrance and not a sacrifice of Jesus, okay? which, like we talked about earlier, um, is not what, the, what is common-held doctrine of the Catholic Church. So they were, they were going against that and speaking out publicly against it. Uh, of course, this movement grew in 1215 the, at the Fourth Lateran Council, which I think is what Bubba mentioned earlier, they would declare an anathema on the doctrine of the Waldensians. Okay, that is, they they curse them. Right, they're they're damned to hell because of their beliefs. Okay, so it's an official thing that they're, there's an anathema pronounced on their teaching. By the 1500s, they were still around. Um, and even though um, to be a Waldensian would be a death sentence um, at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church, they were they were still around. They're scattered all over the place, um, including some of them making their way to Switzerland uh, where they would, would find refuge there and they would join up ultimately with some of the early reformers um, like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. There are even today are still Waldensians in, in different parts of Europe and I think even in the U.S. Uh, there, there are people that would consider themselves um, Waldensians. But, but why, would they, uh, why would they ultimately join up with the Reformers? Well, because they held certain convictions in common. In particular, three of them, the authority of Scripture over the authority of the Pope. Okay, this, is, this is a huge theme in the Reformation. Uh, secondly, the, the need to translate the Scripture into the common language, okay, so that the people could have the Word of God, the people could um, understand the Word of God, which goes to the third point, the ability, they believed that the Regular people had the ability to read and understand and preach God's Word. Um, These, of course, were big problems with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, John Wycliffe, um, you see that in your paper there, 1324 through 1384. Uh, One distinction with Waldo was that he started a movement of lay people. He wasn't a priest, um, and they were not... And none of the people as, as a part of that were priests, though they initially did consider themselves still part of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but John Wycliffe, whom you've all probably heard of, um, was an English priest and a professor uh, at Balliol College, which is part of Oxford University. And Wycliffe was a scholar and not just a lay person. Um, though he would have some, some of the same problems with the church as Waldo did And he also had the same bold practice of speaking out about the corruption in the church. But, difference being, he's actually on the inside. right? He's not a layperson, he's a priest. He's on the inside, and here he is speaking out against um, the Roman Catholic Church and all the corruption. Um, Wycliffe and others at Oxford would become involved in translating the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into English. Uh, a big no-no. Uh, in addition to this, he also wrote harshly about the corruption uh, in the church in areas like transubstantiation, the sale of indulgences, and and the mandatory celibacy of the priests. He felt that the church, which had uh, amassed a lot of property holdings due to the sale of indulgences, like was mentioned earlier, it makes a lot of money. Um, and he was of the belief that they should give all that up, that they should they should... Give all those property holdings up. That the clergy should be um, um, like him, like uh, Waldo, and take on a life of poverty and devote themselves to Christ. He also taught that the church was actually made up of the souls of the elect. Okay, this would also be referred to as the invisible church. The visible church being uh, made up of the priests and the, the cardinals and the popes and all this. And the idea is that you're not a part of the church because you go to church or are a leader in the church, but because God has saved your soul. God has made you a part of the church. He has made you part of his family. So invisible because you are identified not by the visible position you hold, but because of your profession of faith uh, that you make in Christ alone. And so in a sense there, it's, it's invisible. You can't just look out and because a guy's wearing certain things or holds a certain position, say, oh, he's part of the church. Um, we can look out here in any congregation and there, there may be those who are truly um, saved and maybe those who are not truly saved yet. Yeah, Baba.
1: Can I go back to his Bible translation for a minute? Yeah. Uh, a couple things about his biblical translation. Remember, we talked about St. Jerome translating the Greek Bible into latin that was then the mainstay text that was used in the west but it was written in latin who spoke latin in the 13th century not very many people because it was no longer roman and so that allowed the church to have a cornerstone on the communication of the word of god and therefore the interpretation of it and so (coughs) excuse me they wanted it to stay out of the hands of the people because that maintained the church's authority by, because they were the gatekeepers who had access to the Word of God. So the translation of it into the people's vernacular, into the common tongue of whatever people, was a huge threat to the authority of the church. And you know, we've, I've talked about this before. I mean, the biggest difference between us in the Protestant Reformation movement and the Roman Catholic and the Greek Orthodox Church is not individual doctrines like St. Veneration or transubstantiation or, or how we view Mary, but really the fundamental difference is authority and what we view as authority. Because you know, in the Catholic Church, the final authority rests with the men who are in charge, with the collegium or the magisterium rather, the College of Cardinals, the Pope, they, have, they are the authority and the, tra- and the word of God is subordinated to them. Whereas for us, we, you know, our final authority is the word of God. And so that, that translation of the word was a massive threat because that's putting the, wor- the, the, the word into the hands of the people and not into the hands of the people who wanted to stay in charge. So, and just as a side note too, it's not until Martin Luther a little later, is the New Testament going to be translated, and the, and the Old Testament, from their original languages into a common language, into German in Luther's case. With Wycliffe, he was just translating the Latin into Middle English. Uh, so Luther is the first to really get the the, ac- the most accurate possible version of the Word of God into the hands of the people at yeah. that time. Yeah, and... and we- Again,
0: the idea of control uh, is, is so important here, and a lot of the reactions you see from the, the popes and from the leadership is to this idea that people now would be reading the Word of God. They would be determining for themselves what God said um, and maybe even seeing the things that they have corrupted and therefore exposing um, those, those corruptions. Uh, so, yeah, a really powerful thing that the Word of God would be in the hands
1: of regular people. And, yeah. And it's for that reason that we still have Wycliffe translators. I mean, it's honoring the work that he did in mm-hmm. putting the hand, the Word of God in the hands of the people. That that organization today is still is you know taking his name. So he was the first one to really press in on that. Yeah,
0: and and, and in fact, you know, if you know if you know, you know, some of the missionaries we support are Wycliffe Bible translators. Um, they're still still doing that work today. Um, Wycliffe would later become known even as the morning star of the Reformation. Okay. he died in 1384. But like Waldo, his views on Scripture and the church would gain in popularity and influence. These, these men would leave behind followers that were going to continue in this pattern. Um, and he was also declared to be a heretic long after his death by the Council of Constance in 1415. And they eventually actually dug up his body in 1428 and burned his, the remains of his body in effigy. since That is what was done with heretics. Right? So they went to a lot of trouble. Right? You couldn't just let it be. Right, They had to dig him up and burn him. Um, he held the same beliefs as Waldo about the authority of Scripture over the Pope. And um, I included some, some quotes here from Wycliffe. In here, one he, he wrote, um, I believe that a Christian man, well understanding it, may gather sufficient knowledge during his pilgrimage upon earth, that all truth is contained in Scripture that we should admit of no conclusion not approved there, that there is no court besides the court of heaven, that though there were a hundred popes and all the friars in the world were turned into cardinals, yet should we learn more from the gospel than we should from all that multitude, and that true sons will in no wise go about to infringe the will and testament of their heavenly Father." He held the desire to have the Word of God in the common language. Okay, We're seeing a theme here right? with these these pre-Reformers. We're seeing a theme. He wrote, Believers should ascertain for themselves the matters of their faith by having the Scriptures in a language which they can fully understand. Christ and His apostles evangelized the greater portion of the world by making known the Scriptures in a language which was familiar to the people. And he held that it could be Read and understood by the common person. And a century and a half after Wycliffe, um, William Tyndale would also translate the Bible into the English language, but he would do so from the Greek and Hebrew um, instead of the Latin Vulgate. We can thank men like these um, who, who stood firm on the foundation, uh, the truth, the authority of the Bible, and we, we have all benefited from their sacrifices. For the church, for the truth of the word of God, uh, it's something we should not that we should know and we should not forget about. Um, John Huss, or Jan Hus, um, thirteen sixty nine to fourteen fifteen, was from what we know today as the Czech Republic. He was from a village called uh, Husinec, which means Gooseville. Also, interestingly, the Bohemi- Bohemian word for Hus means goose. Um, you remember that for later. He was uh, very much influenced by the writing of John Wycliffe. And he was a preacher who regularly preached uh, in the Bethlehem Chapel in the city of Prague. He preached in the Bohemian language. So um, the people there are exposed to the Word of God in their own language. Um, About God's Word, he said, I humbly accord faith, meaning trust, I humbly accord trust to the Holy Scriptures, desiring to hold, believe, and assert whatever is contained in them as long as I have breath in me. Okay, you can see in, in the words of these men, you can see their conviction, you can see their uh, desire to um, adhere to the Word of God as their, as their authority. Again, like, um, the other two pre-reformers. Huss preached out against the corruption of the clergy, the sale of indulgences. Um, he held strong convictions about the authority of the Word of God for the Christian. He wrote a book called On the Church where he put forward that Christ alone is the head of the church. Okay, well, why did that conflict with the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church? Right, the Pope. Right, the Pope was seen as, as the head of the church. They believed that, that he was the head of the church on earth. And Hus wrote that Christ, and not the pope, was the head and highest authority over popes, councils, and kings. He said, If the papal utterances agree with the law of Christ, they are to be obeyed. If they are at variance with it, then Christ's disciples must stand loyally and manfully with Christ against all papal bulls whatsoever and be ready, if necessary, to endure malediction and death. When the Pope uses his power in an unscriptural way, to resist him is not a sin, it is a mandate. You can imagine how these kinds of things are taken by the leadership of the church. Okay, Not, not a friendly. Um, the Roman Catholic authorities called Hus to come and defend himself. Called him to come and talk about why he has the views he has and, and to, to speak about that. And they actually promised him, they wanted him to come to the, the Council of Constance, and he was promised that he would have safe passage to come and do so. Um, he arrived there in 1414, but he was arrested and put in prison. And interestingly, in, in 1415, at the same council where they declared John Wycliffe a heretic, they put John Hus on trial. Okay, they, of course, they're making their accusations against him as a heretic, um, but he really wasn't given the chance to explain his views. Um, and at one point, he's recorded as saying, I appeal to Jesus Christ, the only judge, who is almighty and completely just. In his hands, I plead my cause, not on the basis of false witnesses and erring counsels, but on truth and justice. So again, you can imagine how that, was, that would be taken. You know, that's a, that's a slap in the face then. He, he's calling them erring councils. Um, and so on July sixth, 1415, they would take Hus outside the city and burn him at the stake. Uh, and, of course, this would set off, people were, were very much angered by this. It would set off a lot of um, armed conflicts be- between the Bohemian people and the, um, and the Roman Catholic uh, forces because of his execution. Um, now, I mentioned earlier that his name... Uh, means goose. And there's an English expression that is often associated with this fact. Does anybody know what that might be? Yeah, your, your goose is cooked. Um, and it's, it would be from that time, from that execution of Jan, Jan Hus. Uh, in Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's reported that Hus told the executioners, You are now going to burn a goose. But in a century you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. Now, who knows if, if Huss saying those words is only a legend or not, but um, those words have been used to show his connection to the coming uh, Protestant Reformation. Okay, and that, that 100 years later was 1517, and the swan is Martin Luther, nailing his 95 theses to the Door, the church door at Wittenberg. Um, and that event is widely thought to be the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, and Martin Luther, the one who lit the spark uh, for that. And so people often associate those, those two things with Martin Luther being that, that swan. Bubba, you had something else. Okay. Um, anyway, Luther would uh, eventually even be nicknamed the, the Saxon Huss. Okay, because of his similarities with John Hus and the fact that he was heavily influenced um, by his life and writings. And before, did you want to say something before I wrap things up? No. Um, so, yeah. Well, actually, the, the, I, the, the fact that he wrote his 95 theses and nailed them to the door there is actually common. It wasn't like vandalism or anything like that. It's, he was posting these things because he wanted to spark discussion about this. So um, he wouldn't have been in trouble for, for simply posting something. Now, what he posted was ultimately a problem, but that was common. It was like a bulletin board. You know, You might have postings around, and so you would post something that people could come and look at and read. So um, that's my understanding that he wouldn't have been in trouble for simply doing that. But what he wrote in opposing the church was, was a big problem.
1: We'll talk about this more, I'm sure, when we get to Luther next. But the, uh, the church and the countries of Europe at that time were very much in league with each other. So to challenge the church, at least as far as you're saying a threat to the, you know, somebody's livelihood and such, yes, absolutely it was. it was. To challenge the church was a threat not just to your livelihood but your life. So And it's, it's going to take somebody like Luther, but also in a political setting that was conducive to Luther, and we'll talk about this more, so I don't wanna just go all over that, that's really gonna take be the right set of circumstances to blow the lid off of everything and get the Reformation really going. There's reasons why Wycliffe and Huss aren't gonna generate a Reformation the way Luther is, and part of that is geography, but we'll, that, that's a story for another day. <laughs> But to answer your question, I mean, yes, you would, your life would be threatened, very much so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: I mean, we have to remember how much, how much power was wielded by, by the church. And it's not like, you know, we would look at somebody sinning and we would want to call them on their sin and maybe go through a biblical a pattern of church discipline, right? But what we're dealing with there is people who would, be considered heretics according to the church are are burned at the stake right you you know to to be considered a heretic was terrible which we would say is also true right anybody that would be a heretic now we wouldn't burn them at the stake but uh, we would call them to repent and come come to Christ yeah No, I don't think we covered that, but I don't think they had a particular scripture in terms of burning people to stake, but the authority they claim is their own authority. They had, it's you know a matter of kind of securing yourself as the head, the voice. So the Pope is the one that set all the rules. The Pope could say, here's what God says, and how could anybody dispute it? They didn't have the Word of God in their own language to be able to see that. So you believe the leaders, right? And so that Right. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't know that they had a particular scripture, Baba do you know of
1: anything they had any particular scripture as
0: far as burning at the stake or
1: No, it's it's purely just a, a function of realpolitik. I mean yeah. they have the authority and they don't want their authority questioned. So if you're questioning it what? Yeah. It, Pretty much. Exactly. You know, and that's a good, a
0: good example, a good thing to bring up, right? And we see it in, you know, in the New Testament with the coming of Christ, with his, uh, his apostles, and how the religious leaders at the time
1: reacted to those things. Same thing. But remember what Tertullian said, the, seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, I mean, what he said back in the second century is still going to be true today and true at the dawn of the Reformation. Yeah. yeah and the, the Pharisee
0: Saul went about ravaging the church, right, until Christ converted him, and then he became uh, an apostle of Christ. So, yeah, I mean, this has never stopped. This kind of persecution against God's church has, has always been there, and it always will be um, until he comes back. But, you know, authority was the big deal. They, they had the authority. They could do whatever... They, they could do whatever they wanted to do. Um, they had that authority. They had that power. Now, they, it wasn't legitimate authority. It's not, not biblical authority. Um, so I wanted to read a, a passage as we close up here in Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Who is the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. Right? And that's what these men were fighting for. Uh, that's what they wanted to, the thinking to come back to, was what the Bible said about who is the head of the church. And from that, though there be differences, like Bubba mentioned earlier, differences and what some of these people believed but when when your authority is the word of god it answers all those differences right? when your authority is the pope you're stuck with whatever that is even when it contradicts and clashes with the word of god so colossians 1:18 says and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent and that had been lost it had been lost and so we're seeing this, the people realizing this, okay? And, and people being willing to lose everything, including their lives, to, uh, to stand on the truth and the authority of the Word of God. And so um, it is uh, actually a very violent very violent time for followers of Christ and who are standing on these things. So we should be very appreciative of those who came before us, um, who, who fought for the truth of God's Word. And we are no less of a battle today in the truth of the Word of God in our culture. Um, you know, we don't see people being burned at the stake here, but um, there's coming a time when we'll kind of be back to these kinds of things where to stand on the truth of the Word of God, you are, you are putting your life on the line, and it's already happening all over the world. It's actually never stopped. So next time we'll be looking at the, at the Protestant Reformation and its effects on the church um, and on the world with, with uh, some more men that were um, considered the reformers of the church. So let's close in prayer, and uh, I'll let you guys go. Father in heaven, thank you again for today and for um, our ability to look back and, and see what you have done with your church through the ages. Um, we thank you for those that have come before us who have had a passion for uh, the authority and the truth of your word, Um, And Lord, may we do the same. May we not crumble uh, in our own day and age when the world disagrees with your word, which we expect them to do. Lord, may we agree with your word, no matter what the consequence might be in our lives. And may we do so kindly and patiently, uh, lovingly, but unwaveringly. And we thank you, Lord, that you strengthen us through your Holy Spirit, that you give us all that we need to, to live this life and we can trust you with everything. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, thank you all for coming today.